Welcome back to the Motivational Intelligence Podcast. I'm Sean Johnson, and today we're bringing you a great conversation that John Casey and I had with James King. So I'll give you a quick bio on James. Mr. King is the Chief Strategy Officer of NCS Multistage. He has been with NCS since 2017, following a 25-year career at Baker Hughes. Mr. King has over 31 years of experience, including 18 in various leadership positions, three of those years in the international arena. Over his career, he has worked in over 20 different countries and is the inventor or co-inventor on over 25 patents in the well completion field. He's also held roles in diverse positions, including applications engineering, operations, and product line management. Mr. King received a bachelor's degree in mechanical engineering from Texas Tech University and an executive MBA from Texas A&M University. He and his wife, Miriam, have two teenage boys. He's an active volunteer for the Boy Scouts of America, Troop 8 in Kingwood, Texas. In this conversation, John Casey and I talk with James about his strategies for leading through a global pandemic, how he got his start as an inventor, the playbook his parents used to raise him, which was pretty interesting, and a whole bunch more. So without further ado, please enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with James King. The Motivational Intelligence Podcast is brought to you by Two Logical's new virtual seminar, Adapt, How to Thrive in a World of Turbulence. Join David Naylor in this exclusive live event with leadership insights on how to effectively transition and manage your team remotely, create a new team purpose and vision for 2021, turn fear and uncertainty into consistent motivation and action, and a whole bunch more. Go to twological.com for more information on dates. And as a listener of this podcast, you get a 20% discount on tickets. Just use the code ADAPT2020 at checkout. The Motivational Intelligence Podcast is also brought to you by Mojo, the mental fitness app incubated at Too Logical. With new insights and guidance every day, people that use Mojo report feeling less stress and more motivated, boosted performance at work, and improved well-being at home. You even get access to episodes of this podcast up to two weeks early on Mojo. Mojo is available through invitation only, so join the waitlist at joinmojo.com to reserve your place in line. Hey, everybody, it is John Casey along with Sean Johnson, and today's podcast is with a very interesting gentleman by the name of James King. He is the science teacher that you always wanted, you know, the one that loved the subject matter, could tell stories, and it made you want to learn more about that subject. And James can actually do it with the most boring, mundane topics, but we're not going to go there today. We're going to uh, make available to him some very rich veins of subject matter. So prepare to be regaled. James has had a very exciting career so far. It spans millions of miles. Yeah, millions. It starts in outer space, and then it comes back to Earth, and then it continues going underground. More on that journey in a minute. But James, first, you told me a story once and I think it was about your first assignment out of the country, and I think it was down in Latin America, Peru, maybe. I think it was just after you arrived in country or, or, or right before, you realized you forgot something back in Texas. What was it, and what did you do about it? I think I know exactly what you're asking, and uh, what I left in Texas was my girlfriend. <laughs> Isn't, isn't that a song? <laughs> I love my girlfriend in Texas. It sounds like it'd be a song. Country oh, song. I'm sure that uh, <laughs> there would be several country and Western songs for this, but yeah, I guess you remember the story of uh, 
me having an opportunity. It just popped up. They said, James, do you want to go to Peru? And I said, sounds like an adventure. Let's go. And so I dumped my girlfriend, sold my house. And in 11 days, I was in Peru. Uh, I didn't manage to notice that there was actually a war going on and uh, that it was an exceptionally dangerous place to go work. And uh, after I'd been down there a little while, um, I realized that uh, I, had, I had made a mistake. I had, uh, I had left my girlfriend behind. And so um, I contrived to go to a training course back in the US and uh, flew back in, and uh, married her. And uh, so brought her down to Peru with me. And, uh, you know, one of the things that we learned was that uh, starting off a marriage in a foreign country was really a great place to start. <laughs> because all the crutches that you have in your normal life are, are kicked away. Your friends are, you know, in another country, your family, um, this was back at just at the very beginning of email. And so, you know, there's not a whole lot of not texting, you know, telephone calling is expensive. Uh, emails are very slow. Uh, you know, if you were to send a picture, it, it would have crashed uh, hmm. an, an email. Back in those days, it was really the end of film. It was filmed before just the beginning of digital with micro floppies. But so we started off, uh, down there with nothing but each other and my job. And hmm. we had a tremendous adventure. And I think that's a really healthy way uh, to start a marriage. And I, I'd recommend it for anybody. Wow. That makes sense. It actually reminds me of when we were talking to Stephen Graham. Uh, it, he had done the, um, the, that trip abroad uh, with his then girlfriend just, just right before they got married. Yeah, they took but a it, walkabout for a year. Yeah, but it sounds like, yeah, just- uh, You can pass that test. Yeah, right, exactly. That's what a what a test. It, but yeah, it, that's a, a point well taken. I would I would think, yeah, not having all of those crutches really forces you to, to figure that relationship out. We'd only dated for a, about three months before I left for Peru. And, and so, you actually, James, had broken it off when you got the opportunity, you kind of, you know, shut it down and, and then, uh, and then kind of went, is that, is that how it went? Yes. Well, we'd only been dating for a couple of months, so it wasn't like I was throwing away some long-term relationship. Uh, so yeah, yeah, I broke it off, got on an airplane and left. But then you got on an airplane, went back and did you, uh, you know, go with hat in hand and, and say, I, 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 I've made a mistake and you might think I'm crazy, but let's get married and move to Peru with me. Yeah. Well, we had talked by phone after I left and, you know, we did have email. So we, we'd communicated, but really what it boiled down to was, um, life becomes a lot more clear when you're in a, you know, in a place with that much change, that much stress. And um, so, yeah, that's I, I basically the way it worked. I went up and proposed. Uh, actually, the night we proposed was in a June of uh, 1997. We could look it up on the calendar, but it was a Friday. It was a Friday the 13th. <laughs> it was a full moon. Uh, there was a, it was a bizarre rainstorm. 
with clouds at low altitude blowing in different directions than the clouds at high altitude through the moon. And a black cat crossed our path and we found a ladder and walked under it and I proposed. <laughs> and all of <laughs> you're, 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 you're not pulling our leg on any of that. <laughs> no, sir, none of that. That actually is all true. And how long have you been married now? <laughs> uh, 22 years or so. Uh, we actually went back and had our uh, wedding engagement photo taken in the playground under the ladder. <laughs> wow. Really, really testing all the superstitions there. Yeah, it was, yeah, it was a ladder up to a slide. I'm sure the slide's been removed for a, you know, litigious reasons, but but we, we definitely walked under it before I proposed. <laughs> That's amazing. So, uh, uh, James, I, you mentioned that last time we were chatting, um, you mentioned a book that you were reading. Um, it was called Bringing Out the Best in People, How to Enjoy Helping Others Excel uh, by, I believe it was Alan Lloyd McGinnis. Um, and you mentioned the way you described it was you said, it seems like it was the instruction manual my parents used in raising me. Can you tell us more about that book and, and how you feel like maybe what concepts in there were, were mirrored by your parents? Oh, my parents, uh, you know, obviously grew up in a different time. Um, my dad was, a, you know, a, they're the World War II generation. And uh, so they had, you know, the taste of the end of the Depression as little kids and then the wartime. And, you know, my dad had a, he was the first one off the farm and he, uh, he thought, you know, cattle ranching and farming was too much like work. So he went to college and got an engineering degree and, you know, went into the corporate life. And, um, you know, my mother, when they got married, they sort of took it on as teamwork. Um, and so, you know, in addition to raising the three kids, she was really his partner in, in his work stuff too. And I, there, you know, there was a lot of social, you know, like, dinner parties and, you know, bridge tournaments and all kinds of things that people did in those days. Um, and they would go together. And I remember them talking about how they approached, you know, events like that. And they did the same thing at family reunions as well. And that was, you know, to plan ahead of time what good questions there were to ask people so that you could draw out from them, you know, what was important to them and, uh, and good things that were happening in their lives. And so they would get to a party, split and go in opposite directions, circling the party, uh, you know, with sort of a, a plan in place. And then they'd get in the car on the way home and they would download to each other what they had learned from everybody else. But, you know, that's just one example. Uh, another is, you know, you take like our family, we still do Christmas with uh, the extended cousins and have, you know, 30 to 50 families show up for uh, Christmas, you know, and we have every stripe of politics and, uh, you know, livelihood represented in a family that's that large, but it's still a very loving and, uh, you know, peaceful event, even in the political ages that we're in now. And, uh, you know, that just, those are some of the things that uh, my folks were doing to model for us kids how to, uh, 
how to work together in groups and how to look after people and encourage people and grow people. And this book, which my mother gave me just a few months back, it's all the pages are yellowed. Um, you know, it's a 40 year old book or so. And, and I can just see as I go page by page, you know, oh, this is what they were doing. And oh, this is what they were doing. But my parents modeled for me uh, very constructive ways to work as a couple, to work as members of a volunteer organization, uh, and, you know, through church and, and also at work. And um, so that book, it's been fascinating to read it now and to look back and say, you know, that I can see how they were applying it. And so either that book was instructive to them or it was reflective of what they were already doing. But for me, it's, it's, a, it's a touchstone that I'll be going back to uh, as, I, as I go forward, you know, building teams and working with people and working in different organizations. So James, it sounds like it's, it's, a, it's a guidebook, um, you know, not only for, for being a parent, um, leading uh, family, but also for being a boss, being a, a leader at work and engaging and aligning people. It is. And the same skills uh, that you use in your family life and in your, your, you know, whatever charitable or social organizations you're in and, and at work, it's, it's really very, very similar things. Um, the only thing that's really different is in some of those domains, you can use, you know, the stick, the punishment, you know, you, I'm the troop committee chair for a Boy Scout troop, and I don't get to uh, fire any of the parents. <laughs> um, but, you know, the drawing people out, the, you know, figuring out what's important to them and listening to stories, uh, you know, to work through encouragement and, you know, to, to give praise in public in little bitty bits and to give criticism in private all at once. Um, you know, a lot of these uh, best practices uh, cross domains. They really do. Yeah. And you, you mentioned, uh, you know, this was your mom had, had given you this, this book. Was it the actual copy that she read that she gave you or just in, she, she bought it new? I think it's an original printing. It, all the pages are yellowed and cracked. It's an old paperback. So uh, this is actually the book that she was reading and, and implementing some of these, you know. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. She picked it up off the shelf and handed it to me when I was there. She's 90 years old now, and uh, she's sharp as a tack. In fact, she beats me in Scrabble about 50% of the time. So <laughs> wow. I don't cut her any slack. You're not an easy guy to breed in Scrabble either. <laughs> yeah, and he'd, he'd have some of those weird engineering words yeah, exactly. that, uh, you know, some folks couldn't even uh, know if they're real or not. Exactly. I definitely get pulled by that. Remember, it's not the words that win the game. It's the triple word score. <laughs> the triple word score. He's even got the strategy down. Best practice. <laughs> um, so, James, you mentioned, uh, you know, what's, what's fascinating is, you know, you remember your parents talking before going into parties and things like that and kind of having a game plan of how to bring out the the best in, in people where, wherever it was that they were going, um, which is something that, you know, most people don't do. Most people don't go to a party with, with any 
forethought of uh, of the people there, what they 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 really are going to want to talk about, or how to make the best of that situation. Um, can you give us an example of you know what what would something like if they were going to a, a family party or a, you know neighborhood barbecue or whatever it was? What would an example of something that they might talk about beforehand and and implement uh, at the party? Oh well, with family, it would be you know kids and uh, you know at at work you know, a work event, it might've been, you know, to not talk about their family or home life or to know that they're involved in some charity or another. You know, one of my dad's customers when I was growing up was uh, in one of those uh, barbershop quartets, for example. And um, if you wanted to get that guy talking, you ask him about his barbershop quartet singing and he had, you know, he'd warm right up. Um, you know, uh, so, you know, if you've got that in mind, before you get into a, a conversation, uh, you know what to ask, you know, that's really what this is, is approaching every event, everything you do with intentionality. Because if you just default back, especially if you're a storyteller, or you're just going to ask random questions, you'll either end up talking about yourself too much, or you'll stumble into conversations where you really just don't want to be. And if you think about, say, the world we live in today, there are conversations you really don't want to start with some people. And uh, thinking about that ahead of time, you know, that game plan allows you to steer a conversation away from trouble and into a place where people will feel comfortable and open up. Yeah, definitely. Wow. Yeah, I love that, uh, that, that what you said about intentionality. Um, I think that's, that's so true. Most people are just, you know, they're winging it. They're reactive. Um, but to, to approach things with intentionality is so much more powerful. Um, I, I want to uh, transition a little bit. You know, you're uh, an admitted car guy. Um, and, uh, and you'd mentioned something um, that at an early age, you felt like you could improve the Ford Mustang. Um, <laughs> so what, what, you know, what kind of made you, uh, uh, feel that way? Um, and, and I guess broader, what kind of drew you to, to cars and, and mechanics? And, and why didn't Lee Iacocca reach out to you yeah, uh, as a, a young boy in the sixties? Oh my God. Um, <laughs> well, back in those days, the, uh, the freedom of turning, you know, 16 or something and getting a car was a transformational life step. Uh, I, as I look at my own kids and the kids of my friends and family, it's obvious that that sense of escapism and freedom generally now comes from a computer screen. But in these days we didn't have, you know, if you wanted to play video games, you had to drop quarters, lots of them into uh, machines. And I started off riding go-karts. I inherited my brother's go-kart and, um, you know, I, I thought that was fun. And I got a car and uh, started working on it. And my friends and I, we all worked on cars. Uh, a bunch of us ended up being engineers. But, uh, you know, the way that I tell that is usually a joke, uh, that story you're referencing. You know, I had a Mustang, worked on it, was barely able to keep it running. Um, but a friend of mine had a Camaro and I remember being under his Camaro replacing his starter and it took three different wrenches 
And I thought, this is dumb. Why didn't they make it where just one wrench would get the starter off this old Camaro? And, uh, you know, I went to school and I, I got an engineering degree and only there at the end of the engineering degree did I realize that if I wanted to work for Ford, I would have to live in Michigan. And uh, so I did an interview with, with Ford. Um, well, too cold for a, a Texas guy like yourself? Yeah, it, you know, as a young person, you know, if, if you don't want to leave your friends and your family and all that change, you know, it's big enough change just to go to work, you know, or to, you know, take up a career. So I ended up going to work for a Johnson Space Center at the Lockheed Corporation instead of doing automotive. The spacecraft was kind of interesting in its own way. But that those that car mechanics thing, um, yeah, that definitely drew my interest into all things technical and engineering. Yeah. What What was it about? It was it just you know making something new? Was it improving something uh, that you know existed already? What What do you think it was that that really drew you to that? Well, I like to go really fast, uh, <laughs> <laughs> which is you know that was probably what was going on as a sixteen year old. But the lifelong joy that's come out of it is uh, fixing things to make something that somebody else would throw away work again. Hmm. And uh, this hasn't gone away. I just uh, last weekend got a 1946 Jeep to run for the first time in 20 years. I got it from a guy down the road, and tore the engine apart. And, wow. It should have been, uh, should have been melted down a long time ago, hmm. but I'm teaching my, my son to drive a stick shift on a Jeep that's 74 years old. Wow, that's cool. How and uh, I had, there was a, between another gearhead friend of mine and I, he bet me that I couldn't get it running, which is probably why it's running now. <laughs> he, he knows how to push the buttons, get the competitive juices flowing. But we, when we have a, a challenge like this between he and I, because I've known him for, you know, you know since college, uh, we have a standard bet. And if you watch the movie, Trading places, you know, that's $1. <laughs> so he bet me a dollar. I couldn't make that Jeep run once I'd figured out the block had six cracks in it. Wow. So, uh, you know, you, you mentioned kind of your interest in, in cars and, and mechanics. And, uh, but there was another thing um, that uh, as, from an early age seemed to have a big influence on you, which was the Scouts. Um, I think, I think you mentioned you come from a family of, uh, what is it? 10 Eagle Scouts. Um, and, uh, so, so how was that kind of influential for you, um, as a young man? Uh, and you know, it seems like it's something that you've stayed involved with. Well, my dad, uh, you know, back in the 1940s, you know, Scouts would have only been what 30 years old back then, pretty, pretty young organization, but my dad was an Eagle Scout. And uh, in the 60s, uh, he started a Boy Scout troop in our neighborhood where I grew up. And my brother was just turning 11 at that time. And so my brother was an Eagle Scout. And I followed in those footsteps later. And uh, the way it's worked out, like you say, there's 10 Eagle Scouts in the family, um, of course, my sister married an Eagle Scout and his dad had been an Eagle Scout. So, you know, there's several of these uh, men that have, you know, passed on. But the next generation, my son, uh, my one of my sons is an Eagle Scout. The other is almost there. My brother has three Eagle Scout sons and my sister has an Eagle Scout son. So 
you add all those up, you get a bunch of Eagle Scouts. And uh, it's, uh, if you want to get your picture on grandma's fridge, you have to get an Eagle Scout <laughs> because she has picture after picture through the years of all these boys, her uh, sons and grandsons at their Eagle ceremonies on the refrigerator door. And um, so some of those pictures, the early ones, you know, my dad and uh, my brother-in-law and, and his dad will be in the picture. And as you move along, you know, my sons come in as little babies and those older men, you know, they come out of the picture. And so we've done that. Now my older son, uh, he got his eagle a, a year and a half ago and he's quite a humorist in his acceptance speech. He, uh, he said that he was Eagle Scout number 10 and he knew that if he did not get his Eagle Scout, he would be, that the family would love him just a little bit less. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's, the thing about scouts is that there's no other, there's no other activity I can see that affords young people as much opportunity uh, to grow and to experience new things as scouts does. You know, in sports, you get to learn teamwork and, you know, if you're in uh, junior achievement, if you learn a little bit about capitalism and if you're in the you know, a political party, you might learn about citizenship or something, but, but Scouts gives you the, the full breadth of experience. Um, and, you know, not only does it give you a sequence of experiences, they're, they're sequenced such that when you join Scouts, you have small things that you achieve, you know, a badge or a rank. But as those ranks advance, they get harder and harder. They take longer and longer. They have bigger and bigger service projects. They require more and more merit badges. Because, you know, as you get older, as the boys grow older, they, they need to have that more challenge, that larger challenge. But the whole thing, the Eagle Scout, is so big that it is impossible as an 11-year-old to imagine accomplishing the whole thing. But you break it up into pieces. Those are the ranks. You break that up into pieces. That's the merit badges. And it, it teaches a young person how to tackle an impossibly large task by breaking it up in pieces. And with a increasing responsibility across those years also, you take, for example, we have one camp out each year where we call it Scout Skills Camp Out. It's the boys' first camp out when they're first enter the troop and they're 11 years old. And they go learn how to make a fire, tie a knot, set up a tent. Well, the next year, they'll be the one teaching the new scout to light a fire, tie a knot, set up a tent. And in the third year, they'll be managing the boys that are teaching the first year scouts. And then by the time that they're done, you know, the third or fourth year, they're running that entire camp out. And so they have gotten to learn each of the steps and work their way up. In fact, what we're, teaching those boys how we teach them to light a fire, how you teach them to set up a tent, how you teach them to run a small group, how you learn to teach a large group, are exactly the skills that we use at work and teach at work. Uh, the teaching method for scouts is called the EDGE method, E-D-G-E, uh, you know, to explain 
demonstrate, guide. Um, and so th those steps are exactly what you're doing when you're teaching a new employee to uh, do their job and, uh, and, and to grow. So, you know, Scouts teaches skills. It teaches how to teach skills. It teaches citizenship and how to be a good citizen. And it teaches leadership. And, you know, one of the keys to leadership is followership. And you get, you know, a leadership position and then you have been the follower and now you're the leader. But after your turn is done, the next six months, you're back being a regular scout and you have to be a follower again. And then you understand what it's like to be the leader and, and then to be the follower. And those skills, I don't know where else we have in our society that in such a structured and effective way teaches people um, how to be effective uh, citizenship, citizens and uh, employees and employers. Yeah. Well, what do you remember about your experience in the Scouts when when you were uh, young and, and kind of coming up through the ranks? Yeah, especially, you know, when it was in, in relation to some of those uh, levels that you had to reach or um, uh, merit badges you had to achieve. You know, obviously, butterflies in the stomach or not believing that you were up to the, the challenge ahead of you and, and then breaking through some of those barriers. Um, that has to you know, teach you a few things too. Well, one jump straight to the top, uh, one memory. And it could never happen today. But back in 1982 or 1983, this was still possible. You know, dads and moms, but mostly in those days, it was just dads, would come and be with the scouts at summer camp. And summer camp was, you know, you'd leave on a Sunday, you come back on a Saturday, and you do merit badges and activities for the Monday through Friday. And dads would come and stay the whole time, or if they had work commitments, they'd just take the beginning of the week or the end of the week. But back then, uh, you know, I had made it to be senior patrol leader. So I was the head boy. Uh, and we had a, the dads had a crisis and somebody, I don't know, it was a death in the family or whatever. There were no dads to come up to camp. And the dads who were at camp, for some reason, both of them or whoever, however many were there, they all had to leave. And so the choice was to shut down summer camp for the entire troop and send everybody home because there were no adults or to hand it over to the head kid. <laughs> I was senior patrol leader and I ran the troop and with home. no adults. Me home. and a guy named, I, I've been 16. Me and Blake Anderson, um, we were senior patrol leaders uh, and we ran the troop with no adults for a couple of days. Yeah, you're and, right. They wouldn't allow and, that. <laughs> <laughs> no, not even close. They would. We would never do that today. But as far as being forced into a situation where you have to step up, I grew up more in those two days than in those two years. Wow. And at the at the closing campfire, they gave us coffee mugs. All right, 
just a Boy Scout coffee mug. And I'm like, what am I going to do with a coffee mug? <laughs> so I, I probably came home and threw it away or used it to hold pencils for a while or something. I would give anything to have that coffee mug now. <laughs> yeah, what a symbol. Because now as an adult, I'm always carrying a coffee mug at a camp out. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I now understand what coffee's for. Uh, but uh, at the time, you know, it really wasn't that big a deal. It was, uh, oh, this is what we got to do. You do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And how many, how many other um, uh, kids were at the camp that, that you had to, to take over? Oh, it was probably 20 or 25. Wow, that's a big responsibility for a 16-year-old kid. Yeah, you can lose one of those. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and that's a lot, a couple dozen. Yeah. Now, as an adult, we've had boys that have drifted off or gone and done something. In a, at, 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 actually, at that same summer camp two years ago with, with our, my boys' troop, we had a boy who went, did an activity without telling the adults where he was going. And that still stands out as one of the most terrifying moments of my life is to think that you lost a boy. Yeah, I, I used to do, uh, uh, fun, I was a fun camp, like a summer camp counselor. Uh, and it was always whenever there was, <laughs> whenever there was a, hey, hey where's, uh, where's Billy? That's, <laughs> that'll always make your heart drop. <laughs> oh, oh, I'm telling you. <laughs> that, was, that was actually a couple years back, but it was the first summer camp as an adult, as a parent. Uh, one of the younger boys went on a hike with the older boys when they, you know, they weren't scheduled to do that. But the kid went and did the hike. It's no big deal. He went on the hike, came back. But for us adults, when we rounded up all the first-year scouts and one of them was missing, uh, yeah. <laughs> well, James, let me uh, let me bring you out of the woods uh, for for a bit. Um, uh, you know, so you know, you're growing up, uh, car guy, scout guy, Eagle Scout. So then you go to engineer school uh, to study the subjects uh, I avoided uh, until I was like 40. Um, and then you have the next 28 years of your, your career, um, which is what I like to characterize as, uh, so he goes from rocket scientist to digging holes in the ground. Okay. Uh, it, it's kind of like the reverse order from what we're taught, you know, keep one foot on the ground and reach for the stars. But you apparently took the reverse journey. Um, you, you started out uh, from the stars and then you came back to earth, but actually you, and you went below earth. Um, but it's on this journey from the stars back to below earth that you discovered your professional calling. Tell us about that. Well, um, I know some of the people who listen to the, to this will, you know, probably won't like the description as I'm going to tell it, but the truth was, um, working for Lockheed at the Johnson Space Center was from a, from the macro sense, fascinating. My friends had equipment that flew into space on space shuttles every time it went up. And uh, that's really exciting. But the fact of the matter is in those days and probably now as well, most of the work doesn't actually fly. Um, you know, there's a lot of work that doesn't, it doesn't go. And uh, so I was working on a project, uh, a docking system actually for a space station to match up with the space shuttle. And uh, I was working and working and working on it. And uh, my roommate was a mechanical systems 
uh, guy for space station and he, he asked me what I was working on. And I said, I'm working on the docking system. He says, well, which system is it? I said, it's the, you know, whatever system. And he says, I don't know why you're doing that because we're not using that system. And I thought, that's really weird. Why am I working, you know, overtime to finish this design project by a certain date? So I went and asked the, the manager over that project what, you know, why there was such a date for me to get finished by and what was the hurry. And, you know, I just kind of couched that kind of question. And, and he says, well, I'm going to headquarters and I need to show them how we're not going to do this. So I need you to be finished so I can show them the design that we're not going to use. <laughs> that doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense. Okay. So I'm a young guy, you know, I'm in my middle twenties and i I didn't respond very maturely <laughs> to being told that my work was pointless. And um, I came home and I told my roommate, I'm done. I'm not gonna work government work anymore. And he's basically said, yeah, right. You know, you're a passionate guy and you'll get over it and whatever. But no, I, I, uh, I started looking for another job and, in Houston and you don't have to look very far from wherever you are to find an energy company. And so I went to work for Baker Oil Tools and uh, I left the, you know, the government contracting world uh, very happily. Um, and uh, so then, yeah, I went to work for, for Baker and worked there a few years. And, you know, I'm, the thing that happened there was instead of working hundreds or thousands of people on a project, you have one or two. And if it works or doesn't work, it's your fault. It's your reward if you get it. And if it works, um, you know, you're rewarded, the industry rewards your company and, you know, everything advances. And that began to take hold. But really when I went out in training and I was out on a drilling rig and I ran my first equipment in the well by myself, and got the ticket signed by the customer, and I saw what that was worth. Um, work began to take on a very different uh, meaning. It wasn't just like high school or college making a grade or working for the government, making things that nobody's gonna use. Uh, all of a sudden, I realized that what I was doing was going to feed the families uh, in the company the guys in manufacturing, the guys in engineering, everybody else who worked there, they're all gonna to get to feed their families because we're making and selling good products, better products. And uh, you know the, the constructive spiral upwards that comes directly out of capitalism and competition became very, very real to me. And uh, once that took hold, boy, that's been, it's been a long time. Uh, it was a long time ago and it's, it's it definitely changed uh, direction and purpose. You know, you said something that um, really impacted me and it was about impact, the impact an employee can have. Um, you started to realize as a, as a young man that you could have an impact on the company. And then that would lead to the company having an impact on the industry. 
And then, of course, the impact that the industry has on the world. And you just saw all those connections happen. Yeah, um, I didn't, John, I didn't see it happen all at once. It was one piece at a time. Mm. It's, it's, you know, the higher you get on the hill, the further the horizon is away. And so, you know, my work meaning being meaningful to me as a person, and then that job and seeing how my work was meaningful to the people around me. And then it was over years later, uh, you begin to really realize the meaning of, you know, your job within your industry, within the world. And, you know, um, the energy business raises people out of poverty. You know, if we weren't, you know, but before there was oil, there was coal and burning wood or dung. And, uh, you know, it's, a uh, you really see how the world works and how things work and how energy underlies all of that. Not just, you know, gasoline for our cars, but, you know, the plastic and the, you know, the MRI machine or, you know, the clothes on your back or, you know, the fact that there's a paved road to a school. And in some of the countries I've worked in, there weren't paved roads, practically weren't schools. And with that level of development coming up out of uh, squalor and uh, subsistence life is enabled by energy and energy companies. Um, and it's, it's such an unfortunate thing to be in a world where uh, an almost Orwellian world where the people who work to create the energy that raises people out of poverty and provides the you know, the literal energy for the entirety of the civilization are demonized by people who don't understand, I would say, hardly anything. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, what we do is tremendously important for the society and the civilization. And it's, you know, of course, there'll be times that cause it all to change and be something else next. Um, but certainly one can think of burning dung, wood, coal, oil, natural gas, uh, to some other energy in the future, like uh, geothermal or nuclear, that uh, it would be next. But we certainly wouldn't have gotten our society and civilization to where it is without petroleum. Yeah, no doubt. And, and, and I do believe, I agree with you, that, that most, most folks don't understand the, the whole picture uh, of it. Um, and... You know, I'm, I'm still amazed, uh, you know, living in, in New York State and one of the highest taxed states in, in the nation. You know, if you take the, the, the federal um, in state taxes out of a gallon of gasoline, you know, you're, you're, you're talking way under $2 um, to get it from underground, uh, you know, through a, you know, a pipeline and then refined and, and then, you know, transported it to the gas station. You know, you're talking about less than a couple of dollars um, for, for a gallon of gas. And, you know, people willingly, without complaint, pay that much for a gallon of water that they get at the gas station, uh, you know, and that's only if it's on sale, because otherwise it's $2.99. Um, so, you know, what, what the industry has done, and, and I believe, you know, most of the folks I've met in, in the energy business um, care about the environment, love the outdoors, you know, like you do. Uh, and, and, you know, it's, you know, 
it reset my uh, understanding of the industry, learning more about it and, and meeting people like you. So I, I, I thank you for that education and, you know, the, uh, the understanding that, you know, what you have chosen to do in your career um, is create technology to bring energy to the world uh, and, and then lift folks uh, around the world uh, out of the, the, the worst spot than they were in. So, um, and, 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 you know, is that, you, you see it that way, but you, you don't see very many other folks, uh, unless they're in Texas and part of the industry, um, thinking along those lines, do you? No, uh, no, I know people who think electricity comes out of a plug in a wall, hmm. you know, um, you know, but the scale of the energy industry is immense and that's how the price can be so low. But there, there are people around the world that don't have adequate energy even today. And uh, I know I've told this story about a guy I used to work with in Angola. And uh, he, he said it's growing up, he couldn't get wait to get out of Angola because there had been a communist insurrection and you know, death and murder and mayhem. Um, you know, he's growing up, but he had gone around the world working for an oil field service company and then decided really what he needed to do was to go back home. And so he managed to get the, the manager job in Angola and went home and he feels like his purpose is to uh, get the energy out of the ground and create the wealth to raise uh, his country, uh, Angola, out of uh, crushing, crushing poverty and bad politics. Yeah. Well, one of the things I've uh, learned on my professional journey working with uh, energy companies is that there's a wonderful reputation in the industry uh, for, for mentoring. Uh, and, you know, maybe it's through the apprenticeship program or just, you know, uh, some experienced uh, older um, a team member taking uh, a, a younger team member under their wing. And um, you've been mentored by some masters uh, and you have a reputation for being wise counsel for many, many others. Uh, before we get to some of your mentees, tell us about some of those influencers, those that, you know, kind of taught you, um, you know, not necessarily the, the X's and O's of, of being a boss in the energy business, but being a real leader, being a, a real mentor. Tell us about some of those influencers. Well, somehow um, that company that I went to work for uh, had a lot of good leaders in it. This is, uh, it was at the time it was called Baker Oil Tools. Uh, but that company had a lot of strong leaders and a culture of teaching, uh, you know, without structured uh, training programs near as much as uh, a mentor mentee type program. It wasn't called that, but you would uh, take a new employee and attach them to a more experienced person and uh, you'd learn the ropes. And, you know, I, I was sent uh, in my training program from district to district to district to learn each of the products. And in each of those places, I'd, I'd, I'd find somebody and they'd coach me along and I'd learn. Uh, but yeah, that's a, it was absolutely just part of the culture of, of setting an example and teaching. Um, of course, as, as generations change, more structure was added to that. I think that you know the additions of structures that we did uh, allowed more people to thrive. But 
uh, many of us thrived in a much more Montessori environment, hmm. um, you know, with a mentor, mentee, uh, you know, structure underneath. And, uh, yeah, there were a lot of those folks that I really looked up to and uh, said, I want to do what he does. I want to be as good as that guy and absorb from them the, the skills and, you know, the mannerisms and actually the language of, uh, of what those people did right. And this takes both halves, right? Is the, uh, you say the mentee or the learner, you have to have a mindset of uh, learning the right things and uh, sifting through the wrong things in order to uh, accomplish the goal. I heard a, um, and actually this is from somebody that you, uh, you mentored. Uh, I heard them talk about a technique and uh, I said, wow, that's brilliant. I love that. Um, where'd you learn that? He goes, James King. Um, and, and, and this is the, uh, and, and I think you learned it from, from a boss. Um, you can disagree with me three times. Uh, what, oh, yes. what is that technique? Where did so explain the technique, where you got it from, and then, you know, how, how have you passed it on? Oh, I'm having a senior moment for getting the guy's name. But, uh, yeah, there's, there was a colleague of mine who gave me this piece of advice. And he said he used it with his employees uh, all the time. He says, I let people disagree with me three times. On the third time, uh, I tell them just do it my way no matter what. And I, I, I absorbed that lesson. And I make it very explicit with employees. You know, at the, essentially, at the first meeting, when you're laying out the ground rules of how you're going to interact as an employee and employer, you know, boss and employer relationship, I say, you know, I pay you to disagree with me up to three times. Um, what I have found is if somebody is brave enough, strong enough, and feels strongly enough about something to raise it twice, I probably need to listen. Uh, and if it comes up a third time, then they come to realize that there's probably something I can't tell them that's the reason they can't do the thing they want to do, or we don't change it to the way that they're suggesting. But I have found that to be very useful for me as a leader uh, because I get better ideas from my folks and my employees like it because they feel empowered to really think about what they're doing because they know they're not going to be reprimanded or ridiculed or, or just turned aside because I've already told them that I pay them to disagree with me. And if I have a yes person working for me, I work very diligently to get that out of them because like I say, I'm paying them to disagree with me. And up to three times means that I'm forced to listen and they're forced to uh, construct their ideas in the best way possible. So yeah, um, that's, that's absolutely a, a rule I live by. It's very useful. It seems like such a great balance of, you know, making sure you're getting all the, all the brains in the game, all the ideas, all the feedback uh, that you need. Um, but, you know, keeping some structure around it so that it, it doesn't kind of devolve into, <laughs> into chaos um, and, and you're still actually able to get things done. It seems 
it seems like that disagree three times is kind of the perfect balance of the two. Well, it works. Also, yeah. Go ahead. Do you find that on the second time or the third time they've actually restructured their, their argument uh, and they've dug a little deeper uh, and they've actually started to develop some persuasion skills uh, and, and then, you know, to, to address that. And then, you know, how often have you changed your mind and, and gone with the direction they want to go in? There's two parts to that, to answer that question, at least. One is, no doubt, if they feel strongly enough to come back with an idea the second time, they will have thought it through much better and be much more persuasive and have a much more detailed plan. The second half of that is, I've probably had time to think about it and chew on it and challenge my own assumptions on the reason I said no. And so sometimes this is actually, it plays out where I know what's going on and they know what's going on and we're playing it out where they're making a better argument and I'm thinking about it. But absolutely, uh, I would say most of the time, let me think about it. Yeah, most of the time I change my mind because it's not my job to have the best answers as the leader uh, or the manager. It is not my job to have the best answers. It's my job to ask the best questions and to get the best answers out of all the people that work for me. Because if I have to think of everything, if I have to decide everything, if I have to do everything, I'll have a stroke. My scope of responsibility is way too wide to be a control freak for everything. It's much easier for me to manage a wide swath of an organization if I have highly empowered, intellectually engaged employees who are willing to think through the best way to solve problems and then structure their, answer, their, their questions to me such that they can change my mind or convince me. Yeah. Well, I think this is actually a, it's a great um, segue into uh, something else I, I wanted to, to talk to you about, which is um, most people, when they think about big global organizations like a, a, a Baker Hughes, where you spent a, a good chunk of, of your uh, career, um, they don't think of uh, innovation necessarily or, or uh, in big organizations, often people think it's, it's and it is hard to innovate and, and hard to change the status quo in organizations like that, um, that are just that, you know, have that size scale. Uh, but you have, I believe it's 26 patents uh, under your belt. Uh, so you obviously kind of cracked, cracked that code a little bit. Can you tell us, you know, uh, how do you in such a, how did you in, in such a big organization so successfully innovate? Well, um, I, there's a there's a little maverick uh, in my personality, but what happens in a large company is frequently you can hide and just go with the flow and you know have your rough edges round off and get by and leave it to somebody else to come up with the ideas. Um, you know, Machiavelli states that, you know, there's no, nothing more dangerous than to be the 
person trying to institute a new order of things. But what I, what I found and what made me quite successful in that entrepreneur realm was that um, I saw opportunities to do things in a different way. And I was given enough autonomy to do them. But I could have gotten into so much political trouble that it wouldn't have been successful, especially if I had tried to do things in secret. And I, I don't know where this actually comes from in my background, but the idea of trying to use subterfuge and you know hide things and, and do things on the QT, as they would say, that really wasn't in my DNA. And so what I did when making changes, big changes in a company, is I got permission and made changes, but I did it in a way that was completely transparent. So when I was working with other groups that might not have appreciated or liked what I was up to, I did it anyway, but I didn't do anything in secret. In, in, at least in my telling of this, nobody should have ever been surprised at what I was up to. Mm-hmm. And they might have disagreed, but you know, success in, the, in these endeavors, uh, let it continue. And you know, some of these changes became permanent within the company, and then some lasted only a generation or two of leadership after me. But you know, the, the world changes, the company changes, the environment changes, and so no, no structure, no, no corporate structure, no organizational structure is correct, ever. It's always a matter of context and changes over time. As things are dynamic, you need to decentralize your decision rights and control. If things are uh, contracting or uh, stable or, or in, a, in a, a place where uh, there's a lot of regulation, you have to centralize control. But you know, that uh, decentralization centralization question ties directly, uh, you know, assignment of decision rights, this ties directly to this. You know, when you go out and do something different in a company, to not do any of it in secret and to do all of it transparently, then no one questions your motives. And even if they disagree, it's professional. Uh, and it doesn't cause you know interpersonal friction or, or political as many political battles. Yeah, I think that's such a, a great point about. Uh, you know, when, when you are transparent about it, nobody questions your motives. Um, because I think, uh, you know, anytime you, people feel like somebody's doing something in secret, they always feel like there's a, an, an agenda there, but putting it out kind of, I guess, takes that objection off the table. It does. And it also, it builds trust yeah. that in the future, you know, maybe you're working with somebody who you had a disagreement with, you had a disagreement and you know, there was conflict, but you were upfront and honest about it and transparent. And then in the future, maybe you agree on something. Well, that person doesn't all of a sudden think, oh, he, he agrees with me and it's still, you know, there's an agenda behind it. The transparency transcends agreement and disagreement, both. Yeah, well, and you mentioned, uh, um, you know, early you would, you would get permission from, from people to 
Um, you know, I, I would assume this maybe is a, a direct superior or something like that. Uh, if there was a change that that you wanted to make, is is that accurate? And and uh, or or maybe not entirely. Um, no, it's it's that is accurate. Um, I mean, how did you go about doing that? Uh, you know, uh, to make a going to somebody and actually getting them to sign off on a change you wanted to make. Um, well, it's just that I if I had a diff, a plan for how to do something in a different way, I put the ideas down on paper. I crafted a script of how I would say it, and I would roll it over. You know, the sales pitch essentially, dozens of times. And I would wait for that moment where uh, it's the right time to pop the question, so to speak, but to say, hey, look, there's a different way we can solve this problem. I can get it done if you let me do it like this. And certainly there were times when I was given permission to do things. And if it hadn't worked out, uh, my boss would not have taken the fall, mm-hmm. um, but would take the credit when it worked out. <laughs> But it's amazing what you can get done when nobody cares who gets the credit. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's a great point. Well, and I think, I think, uh, you know, I, I love the line that you said that uh, I can get it done if you let me do it this way. Um, oh, yeah. That's, that's a, a really powerful, powerful line to, to somebody because at the end of the day, they want it, whatever it is, they want to get it done. Um, and so, you know, if, if there's enough of that, trust and, and you're being transparent about it. Um, I would, I would think that owns you, uh, that earns you a little bit more leeway. Well, and, and, and James, you were, you were surrounded by some, some pretty good young talent that didn't know what they couldn't do. And, and I, and I think that dream team, as you once called it, uh, that you were leading, um, you collected a whole bunch of patents and you got your picture in the annual report. Uh, with with uh, the, that team you were on, that small team that moved such big needles. And now those team members are well-known global leaders in their own right. So that must have been a very special time uh, for you getting the, uh, I guess, enough rope to hang yourself, uh, but then really making a difference and also showing others uh, on your team kind of how to lead by example. Is, is that accurate? Actually, that's, that's very accurate. I mean, you've heard me tell the self-deprecating joke that I felt like I was the teacher of the gifted and talented class for several years. But I had uh, four engineering managers in a row that were you know, much more qualified than I was, but I had the lucky accident of being born first. <laughs> and uh, you know, they, are, they all turned out to be fantastic leaders and accomplish great things and go very far around the world and up the company. And, uh, you know, there are several things that, um, that I, I absolutely ironclad rules when you were working for me. We did not call any engineering projects that we did cowboy. And we said nothing that we did was going to be called skunk works. We were given permission to do engineering work within operations. The way that we were allowed to do that is because I asked for permission, got it, and did it transparently. And nobody thought that we were doing something stupid and dangerous. We were just doing it faster because we had the ability to do that. And we made uh, a tremendous amount of money for the company in the long run. 
And you know, later when Baker sent me off to get an MBA, I learned what we were actually doing. And that's <laughs> uh, the allocation of decision rights and decentralization of control in a, during a period of dynamic change. And at that time, that was exactly the right thing to do. I wouldn't ever say that was the right thing to do in every market, at every time, for all time, everywhere, in every company. You certainly wouldn't decentralize control of the design of nuclear power plants hmm. or a highly regulated environment like working in the Gulf of Mexico, you know, in, in the oil field, but on land in an environment that was changing really fast where there was very little risk of, of a, a failure causing uh, an HSE problem or even a high financial risk. It was a low risk environment. It was a time of fast change. It was time to decentralize. The company allowed us to decentralize. I had the right people to get the work done. And uh, we, you know, we did very well. Yeah, no, I think that's, um, you know, understanding the context. Um, uh, but it, it does seem that, you know, given the right, the right context, uh, you know, that decentralization um, uh, enables you to move uh, with a little bit more uh, autonomy and, and therefore, you know, pump out some more innovative ideas or, or do things faster than uh, maybe a, in a traditional structure. That's true. And, and there's a lot of theories that have developed over the years since then, you know, agile and and whatnot that take advantage of, of decentralization, decentralization. But there are things that underlie uh, decentralization and agile and scrum. And that is a, uh, in particular, an understood shared set of rules or values. Um, you know, what, what things you have the liberty to work within, which things you don't have you know, for instance, uh, as, uh, for an example, we engineered products and operations, but all of my engineers had previously worked within the centralized engineering group. So all of them knew design standards, or at least design guidelines rather, design guidelines and drawing standards and how to do the work, the fundamentals. So once those fundamentals were understood and mastered, then uh, empowerment and creativity and decentralization worked really well. Um, because the work that we did was acceptable to the centralized group, we, we could do this, we could pull it off. But you know, it, it's not just anywhere, anytime, willy-nilly you know, uh, chaos. It was very organized chaos. Yeah, sure. Well, and so you were at, at Baker for uh, a, a long time, uh, but three years ago, you you uh, you left and you joined a, a smaller energy service company, uh, NCS Multistage, uh, which I believe was founded by a former colleague who sounds like had been trying to recruit you for quite some time. <laughs> um, how was the transition to going from uh, you know a, a giant corporation into a, a smaller, more um, startup type company? Then, oh, this has been really a whole lot of fun in uh, an interesting intellectual and professional challenge. But yes, I, I was recruited away by one of my former supervisors, actually two of them. Uh, and, you know, they, they brought me over um, 
into a, a small company that had grown up in an entrepreneurial environment. And um, so they figured that, I, I suppose, putting words in their mouth now, but since I had, you know, I don't know, uh, I figured out how to, to, to set up and to use uh, structure without bogging all of, of progress to a, to a dead stop that I could help a young entrepreneur based company uh, gain some of the discipline of a larger company, but not lose the innovation and uh, speed of a smaller company. And uh, that's still a work in progress uh, because we're in the middle of the largest industry collapse in the history of the industry. Uh, you know, some people will say it was all predictable, but I would say that uh, it's two black swans to have the, the Saudis and the Russian price war at the same time as a worldwide pandemic. Yeah. For destruction of demand, it's completely unheard of. Um, you know, for 20% or so of the world oil demand to disappear in a month is, is not, uh, that's, that's not normal. Yeah. So I want to, I want to circle back to the, the volatility in a, in a moment, but you know, you mentioned kind of working to, uh, that's, you know, still a work in progress, but working to kind of set up the structure in the company where you, you get the best of both worlds of, um, you know, really you're getting things done and, and done the right way, but you're, you're maintaining that level of innovation. Um, what, what kind of concepts or, or structures are you trying to implement or what's your kind of philosophy around that? And is it stuff that you learned while you were at, at Baker, or a combination of things you pulled from different places? Well, certainly it's a combination of things I've pulled from different places. You know, how I manage people, you know, dates back to these, you know, these lessons taught by my parents and, you know, uh, good books I've read, mentors I've watched and quite, you know, to, not to put too fine a point on it, but things I've learned from John Casey at Too Logical and how that's tied them together. But, uh, you know, at, at the new company, uh, setting in place those basic structures from which, you know, trust and understanding come like uh, design guidelines and drawing standards and how you do job books and document your work and how you measure what's going on because you can't manage what you don't measure and uh, you know teaching the discipline that one of the most important things I might say the most important thing is not knowing which projects to start it's knowing which projects to stop and you know so I have worked diligently to teach people that you know, once you get over your skis or it's taking too long to get something done, there's nothing wrong or embarrassing about stopping a project. You know, back in the day, uh, I canceled products that uh, I had invented. I was an inventor amongst others on some things and decided we weren't going to make that anymore and just kill it. And it's, it's knowing when to stop that allows you to have the bandwidth to do the new thing. Uh, that allows you to grow and get, go forward. Because if you have to finish every single thing, the same as your to-do list every day, you'll get bogged down. Uh, you, have to, you have to cut bait. Sunk cost bias can drown, especially a small company. I'd say a large company too. 
You just yeah. got to stop the things that are not the right thing to be working on. Even if you're, as engineering would say, one test away. <laughs> That's like getting halfway to the wall. Um, if it's, get there. you got you to gotta know when to cut. Stop. Yeah. Just move on. That's painful. Yeah, no, and I think that's that's such a good point and something that I think is often not not talked about enough. But you know, uh, Steve Jobs I think had the famous saying that you have to say no to a thousand things um, in order to you know to say yes to one and make something great. Um, and I think that's such a great point with you know really um, you know picking your battles um, so that you have the bandwidth to do what it is that you decide is, is the important stuff, do it really well, as opposed to, to trying to do everything and, um, you know, probably neither not finish it all or do a mediocre job of it. Yeah, there, there's actually, I could probably go on all day talking about the philosophies and structures of how to, uh, you know, bring an entrepreneurial, uh, you know, to continue the entrepreneurial part without getting hung up and you know, how, to, how to manage this. But, um, you know, knowing when to stop, knowing which things to choose, uh, that is a very, those are very important, uh, mental structures to put in place. Yeah. When you talked about, uh, you mentioned something earlier, just with the, the huge downturn that the industry is going for, um, you know, and, and oil and gas is, uh, you know, the energy business is, is legendary for, for volatility and, uh, obviously going through a huge, huge downturn right now. Um, you know, how do you prepare yourself and how do you prepare your people for an industry that kind of has that volatility or, or even just leading them through something like this, this big of a downturn right now? Well, there's multiple components to answering your question. Uh, you know, one piece of that is how do you decide how you're going to size your company? You know, how much are you going to to cut down? And you know which product lines to close are just to mothball or to just make smaller. Uh, those decisions are very, very difficult. And I think that those are diff different depending on the financial condition of the company and how long you expect the downturn to be. But one framework from the company's perspective is you can think about what to cut or who to cut in particular. That's one framework. Another framework is to say, all right, this trough in the business is going to last so long. Who do I want to have to build it back up with? And it actually leads you to a very different place. If you're thinking about what to cut down to instead of what do I need to build up from? And so, what we've had to do in, you know, to a company that's you know, you know, overexposed to North American operations is uh, think about who do you want on the team when you're building it up after this happens, after we're through this. And we were not, <laughs> this is a small company with really tight relationships and very good people. We didn't release you know, bad people, bad employees. You know, we've, it's been traumatic and I could count the low performers really on one hand out of everything that we've done. 
count the low performers on one hand. Uh, but we had to get down to a certain size, and then you decide that size and you decide what you're going to build up from. So then when you talk about how do you get your employees ready for this, well, you don't have to do very much if people read the news. Everybody knows there's a pandemic and a price war and an oversupply. Um, so, but I did work diligently to help everyone to understand there were difficult days. We would be making difficult decisions and we do everything we can, you know, to transition people with dignity. And, uh, but it's still, it's terribly difficult. Then the next step after that, uh, and this was a learning on my part. It's just never happened during a downturn in my previous life where it was all done in person. This time it's done over the telephone. So the next day I get on the phone and call through the organization to the survivors. And that ended up helping me emotionally to get through you know, what is really the worst part of a leadership position in a career. But it also helps those that are receiving that call. And so I found it to be a very healing and healthy thing, what you do after the cut is over. And talking to the folks about, I'm going to miss the people who are gone too. They, you know, it wasn't anybody's doing. We are the victims of, of, uh, of the circumstances, but how we respond to it, what we're going to do, our decisions that we make, we're going to be able to build the company back. And I wanted you on this team as we build it back uh, in the future. Yeah, we've always um, <clears throat> believed it's, uh, you know, it's, it's easy to lead when times are good. Is it, or as a matter of fact, you know, almost anybody can do it. Uh, it's it's when times are difficult and uncertain uh, that real leadership really needs uh, to happen. And you know, uh, we've all met brilliant scientists and great subject matter experts never reach their professional full potential because they never figure out how to engage a team, um, how to communicate even difficult stuff, um, how to bring out the best in others. You've accomplished both of those things, James, um, you know, being a, a scientist, subject matter expert, but also a people leader. Have you put a conscious focus on, on you know, straddling that line? Uh, and has that focus shifted to, you know, the leading people versus managing stuff? Uh, uh, has that shifted uh, as you've moved up the, the food chain in your own career? Yeah, I, that, that's absolutely true. And, you know, there's a, a title of a book. It's not actually a very good book, but it's a great title of what got you here won't get you there. Hmm. And what I found is the things that bring you joy in, say, any given role are the things that you're going to have to hand off when you go find the new joys of the new role. I used to love the sense of satisfaction in designing a piece of equipment and having it work or fixing a piece of equipment, and having it work. Well, once you're managing those people, you're no longer doing that job. You're coaching and leading and teaching the people who are doing that job. And that, that goes all the way up. Um, there are parts of my subordinates roles that are 
much more fun than what I have to do by far. And the way I decide what I'm going to do each day, part of my triage is I look at a problem and say, is this going to be fun to solve? And if it's going to be fun, that's the thing I have to hand off. <laughs> and we, we, you do laugh and I say it in a joking fashion, but that's absolutely uh, a conscious decision each day of you know, solving this problem will be easy. It'll be fun. It'll be rewarding. I'll give it to so-and-so and have them do it. <laughs> and, uh, that's just part of that now, but as far as you know, different pieces of different roles, uh, absolutely. Uh, much more of my time is spent in people managing and people leading than in you know, the mechanics of doing things uh, as you move from as individual contributor to manager to leader. I think that answers your question though. Yeah, no, it does. And and another thing that you've, you've done during the pandemic uh, with the lockdown and all is that <clears throat> you, you made a decision uh, early on to start calling people um, that you had relationships with. Maybe you hadn't caught up with them in years or even decades, but you put a, a hard target focus on making a certain number of calls, reaching out to people, some of those folks that you had to lay off, but, but also people that you worked with 10, 15, 20 years ago. And, you know, it, it was the right thing to do uh, to check in and see how people are doing and just to say, hey, I'm, I'm thinking about you. Uh, I care. Hope you're well. Um, you know, that's, that's hard to do for a lot of people. Um, it makes them feel uncomfortable. What if I interrupt them? What if they, you know, don't want, want the call, blah, blah, blah. But you just blew through all of that and, and started making a lot of phone calls to a lot of people. What did you learn uh, doing that? And, and um you know, I guess about how many calls you can make, how many relationships you, 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 you've had, uh, how many people you can touch and lift. What, what, did, you, what did you resolve or, or conclude um, while doing this? Well, it wasn't my idea. It was the idea of a guy named Chris Watson, who's our sales manager in, in Canada. And he was specifically talking to people with, sales roles, how do you manage doing a sales job during a time of quarantine? But I took that and said, well, if, if that's a good plan for them, it's a good plan for me too. And so I, uh, for a long time, kept a list actually, because uh, you can't manage what you don't measure, and um, made a certain number of calls every day. Now, some of those were work calls. So obviously, you're making a certain number of meaningful contacts during a day with your employees and your supervisors, your colleagues. But, you know, if you raise that bar a little bit, I started to reach out to family, to friends, uh, to people I hadn't seen in a long time, uh, to a, an old list of contacts. And, uh, you know, so having a target, it wasn't hitting the target that was important. It's just knowing it was there encouraged me to make one more contact a day, one more call a day. And, you know, with intent uh, to make a contact, to see how people were doing, see how they were responding to the COVID lockdown. And what I found was that many people uh, were really isolated. Uh, not just, uh, but let's see, how would you say this? People who didn't have a really good network once they were not going to work. So single people, 
uh, shut-ins. I also found that entrepreneurs that uh, had their businesses essentially destroyed, damaged, uh, or at least changed dramatically. Um, you know that uh, you know, empty nesters, these folks uh, really appreciated a call. And you know, so with, with, with intent, I, I kept a list and made calls or text messages or emails uh, with the intent of just connecting with folks. And uh, I found it to be uh, pretty healthy for me and uh, really helpful to those folks, especially people who really, really didn't expect a call from James King. <laughs> and, uh, you know, is there something wrong? Do you need something? He said, no, no, I'm just calling to check in because it's a weird time for everybody. And I just want to know how you're doing. And, uh, you know, uh, but more than those folks that I talked to, you know, however many that few, several hundred people that's been, is it many of those folks, you know, I told them what I was doing. You know, I'm making a bunch of calls. It's thinking about you. You're on. It's not because I'm ticking off a list. It's just I'm calling you. And a lot of those people turned around and did it themselves. That they made a point of reaching out to more folks and not retreating into a hermit status during uh, COVID. And so I think most of that. Um, you know, I got it from somebody and I passed it along to somebody else. And I think it helped a whole lot of folks along the way. I'm sure it did. Um, and, you know, just the gesture w would do it, um, I, I think, for most. But then when you actually back it up with uh, all your insight and, 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 and wisdom uh, and your own leadership journey, you have a lot to, to share and, and you can help elevate people. Um, <clears throat> You know, I saw you last, James, in, Cal in Calgary uh, in March of 2020, and uh, I, I, I learned when I, when I joined you and your team there that uh, you and your wife and two sons along with you in Calgary, uh, you're obviously based in Houston and that's where you live, uh, but this was March of 2020 and uh, uh, the wife and kids, you were going to do a little skiing um, after your business. But you and the family actually traveled from Houston to Calgary in a very interesting manner that didn't go with the original plan. What the heck yeah. happened? And why did you do what you did and then repeat it on the return trip? Well, tell well, us about that. <laughs> uh, it's kind of embarrassing. But you know, the fact is that uh, my uh, son is a minor and uh, his passport had expired. So I checked with, you know, the Canadian government, what's actually required to cross the border. And it said proof of citizenship and proof of birth is all that's required to get across the border into Canada. So despite the fact that I've show a passport, I travel international, I have for years a lot, we made a go for it because it was too late to get a passport uh, when we figured this out. And, uh, what is required to get across the border into Canada is not what's required to get on a United Airlines flight into Canada. <laughs> so what I imagine is going on there is they do not want to be responsible for somebody stuck on the outside of immigration in another country. So they won't let you on a plane without a real life passport. And so uh, we couldn't get on the plane. We got our luggage back off. And I said, I guess we'll do something else for vacation, you know, for spring break. And uh, 
my wife says, well, let's drive. <laughs> I said, it's, it's like a 24 hour drive. <laughs> and, you know, my other son or one son says, well, at least we're together as a family. And the other son says, no, dad, let's, let's drive. Let's go. Let's do it. Let's do this. And I'm like, you people are crazy. So we loaded our luggage into the pickup truck because we were already packed and we went to the house and we threw peanut butter, bread, sandwich, meat, mayonnaise into a cooler. And we started driving. From Houston and to Calgary, it's, it's what, 3,000 miles? I mean, that's it's not a, a short road trip. It, it, the whole road trip, I think, was 3,600 miles. Oh, okay. So they're in back. So they're in back. But certainly, uh, it is the longest commute to the, <laughs> to the Canadian uh, Tech Center. And I think anybody's done. But we, uh, we drove. Um, the best moment of the trip was this really wonderful, charming, friendly border guard at Canada who uh, let us in because <laughs> I was not excited about turning around in North Dakota and driving all the way back to Texas. But oh, uh, it's true. What do you need? Around at the border. Oh, I know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, it's so funny because um, I explained the problem. You know, we have these passports. They expired a few weeks ago. He says, have you renounced your citizenship? So they're <laughs> my, my sons in the backseat are like, no. And he's like, okay, welcome to Canada. You got any guns in the truck? I said, no. He goes, but you're from Texas, right? I said, yes. I said, yes, but I cleaned it out before I came to Canada because I know how y'all are about that. And so they let us across the border and we got to go to Banff. It's beautiful. Uh, my sons learned to snow ski, snowshoe, wear clampons, ice skate. Those are things, four things they had never done before. Wow. And, uh, you know, uh, they got to hear a sound that I had never heard before, which I think many Northern folks like yourself or Canadians, it'd just be second nature, but that's the sound of a quiet day with nothing but the scraping of the skates and the slapping of the sticks playing hockey mm -hmm. on a frozen pond. Yeah. Yep. Not something I had ever heard before, but I knew when I heard it, I thought there are people for whom this is a really, really meaningful sound and uh, got to see that there on uh, Lake Louise. Um, anyway, we had a great trip. Uh, that was the last time you and I were together, um, you know, teaching that group of folks, of, you know, the leadership techniques that uh, have worked so well. Well, and, and then, then I, you know, you, you were exploring that week, I remember this vividly about you know, how can we get home so we don't have to drive? And uh, oh. you had your car up there. You were going to trailer it. You, know, you were going to, you know, fly everybody home and, and, and all this. And then the family vetoed it again, right? It's exactly <laughs> what happened. I tried, I, I was calling shipping companies, uh, you know, train, you know, they move cars from Canada to the U.S. all the time. You know, it's, there's manufacturing facilities in Canada. But um, at the end of the day, that everybody wanted to ride in the car together again. You know, we're listening to books on tape, playing games, um, and uh, we got snowed in. There was a blizzard, whiteout conditions in Shelby, Montana. Uh, so we got stuck for hmm. about 36 hours in a hotel. Uh, don't have snow tires on my truck, so 
Uh, it was quite frightening, actually. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I got to watch The Princess Bride, the best movie ever. You got to remind us when the kids were small. And uh, we drove all the way back to Texas. And the day we got back was the day that we shut our office down and quarantined. So, that, wow. but it was a wonderful time of family. Because with teenagers, you know, being in the same house is not being together. And being in the same car <laughs> is not always together, but we, we made it that way. Yeah. Wow. That's, I've shared that example with others and um, they're, they're always amazed that you voted to return together in the same enclosed space. Um, you know, as we begin to conclude, um, my last thing that I wanted to ask you, James, is that, um, you know, there's a lot of inter interesting folks that um, guys like you and I have crossed paths with, and they seem to know a little bit about a lot of different things. But James, you're one of those rare people who know a lot about a lot of things. Why are you so curious? Why do you, ever since the beginning, it seems to, to have been on a, a path to really seek uh, and share knowledge? Well, I, you know, some of that was probably taught by parents in a, in a, in a, in a household where uh, you know, learning and education were important. But there's another component along the way where conscious decisions were made to change the way that I did things. Um, one of which is I was not a particularly good student uh, in school. And once I was out and working, I, I had the revelation that I was up against those people who had beaten me <laughs> in school. And I had to figure out a different way. And so finding the roles that I could use a, a wide set of skills on uh, but, but also, what was I going to do differently to level the playing field against people who had proven themselves a better student than I was? And I remember I made conscious decision that I was no longer going to watch, say, sports on TV. And there'll be people listening to this podcast who just, that's the most shocking and you know, unimaginable thing ever. Go do the math. Go do the math on the number of days, you know, hours, days, weeks, a year can be consumed watching somebody else have fun. <laughs> or, you know, TV. How many hours are you spending being amused? And so I took those times, you know, the time that would have been uh, idle and uh, I put it to productive use and uh, I've done that for decade after decade after decade and it adds up yeah well I would imagine the, the compound interest on that time <laughs> uh, over over a lifetime is uh, that's a lot then uh, I have a cousin who uh keeps a record of the books she reads every year. And so at Christmas, uh, it's kind of a competition. Okay, <laughs> yeah. There we go. Yeah, you, you, can't manage, you can't manage what you don't measure. So <laughs> just keep a record of all the books you've read. You know, and you do that for a decade or two, 
And I don't read that many. I'm not anything like John. I probably, you know, a good year is 20. And, uh, but if you start knocking out 20 books a year or even 10, you do that for a decade or two, all of a sudden you've got a lot of, a lot of books. And, you know, there's companies like the teaching company, um, which puts college courses on audio and video. Um, and you can check those out from the library now, so it doesn't cost you anything. Back in the day, I, I had expressed an interest in one of their courses. And my wife says over the dinner table, well, how much would a master's degree cost? I'm like, oh, I guess that means I have carte blanche to go get teaching courses. And uh, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dollars later, um, you know, I probably owned at one point, you know, 20 or 25 of those courses from the teaching company, which I donated to the library once they were available and audible and at the library. So, um, but you know, that, like you say, the compound interest of using the time that you could have spent idle uh, pays off in the long run. Yeah, absolutely. Well, James, I want to be respectful of your time. Um, but before we wrap up, I just had uh, one final question. Um, if there's one thing that you wanted people to remember or take away from this conversation, what would that be? Well, I think, you know, if I just reflect back on, on the conversation we've had, it's approaching life with intentionality. And to, you know, those interactions you go into each day, the decisions you make, how you spend your time, you know, that that isn't a random thing done just with emotional thinking each day. That, uh, you decide what you're going to do, what you're going to do with your life, and you uh, you do it with intentionality. Yeah. Don't react. Be intentional. I think that's such a great a great way to wrap our conversation, and a great thing to for us to keep in mind. Well, James, uh, thank you so much for taking the time to to wrap with John and I. Um, I know I immensely enjoyed the conversation, and by the look on John's face, I know he did too. <laughs> Uh, so thank you again for, uh, for spending the time with us. Really appreciate it. Thank you, James. Yes, sir. The Motivational Intelligence Podcast is brought to you by Two Logical's new virtual seminar, Adapt, How to Thrive in a World of Turbulence. Join David Naylor in this exclusive live event with leadership insights on how to effectively transition and manage your team remotely, create a new team purpose and vision for 2021, turn fear and uncertainty into consistent motivation and action, and a whole bunch more. Go to twological.com for more information on dates. And as a listener of this podcast, you get a 20% discount on tickets. Just use the code ADAPT2020 at checkout. The Motivational Intelligence Podcast is also brought to you by Mojo, the mental fitness app incubated at Twological. With new insights and guidance every day, people that use Mojo report feeling less stress and more motivated, boosted performance at work, and improved well-being at home. You even get access to episodes of this podcast up to two weeks early on Mojo. Mojo is available through invitation only, so join the waitlist at joinmojo.com to reserve your place in line.